do that. Today's teaching moving from last week's settling for bronze will be called the reign of pain. Sorry, it's true. The reign of pain. Let's pray and ask for the reign of God's blessings as we move through both historical truth but also present-day application. There is a reign of pain that we are in, and it hasn't simply started close to two years ago. It's been on the ascent. We'll backtrack a little bit and see if we can see comparatives. Lord, we ask for your blessings now. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people, your place. Thank you, Lord, for taking us from where we were to your presence and where we are now, loving us, giving us beautiful opportunities to see even in the most untimely challenges your deliverance of us. Lord, seeing in instruments that need changing of strings and polishing of wood, that it's kind of what you do to us. You're consummately aware of how tuned we are into you and how much perhaps of the world still clings to us. And as we submit to you, you restring us and you tune us and you polish us. Lord, we realize that we, from your perspective, are gold. And we get to say, as we enter and as we leave, when questioned about how we're doing, we can say with sincerity, I'm golden. Perhaps groaning, but I'm golden. In Jesus' name, bless this word. Amen. Amen. Chapter 15. I can remember, I think with certainty, and some of you historians and politics may be able to correct me, but I think that I'm going to get it right. I certainly remember back to Kennedy, but I also remember Eisenhower, who preceded him. And I as well remember, basically from history, that my father would have been very much a part of Truman, who was the subordinate of FDR, Roosevelt. And so those were what would be called the World War II era presidents, followed by one that would be overseeing Korea, Vietnam, following, I believe, that in lineage, and you'll see where I'm going with this, would have been Nixon, but he was preceded by Johnson. Johnson took Kennedy's spot when Kennedy was assassinated, and following that lineage, Ford, took Nixon's spot when he resigned before an impeachment that was intended for him. I believe that following Ford, he was not re-elected, which would have been his first. He filled into a spot was Carter. I think I'm correct on that. And following Carter, I believe we had Reagan. Am I correct on that? Going forward, following Reagan, I believe that we had Clinton. Did I miss? I don't think so. Following Clinton, we had Bush. Bush, we had, oh, nope, 
Reagan, it would have been, um, yes, Bush Sr. And then we had Clinton. I remember that debate. That was the 90s. Two terms down there, I was in missions. And that was a hot season there, hot season in politics. And then we had Bush Jr. and then Obama. And we have Biden presently. Did I get it right? Well, <laughs> I'm not going to say it because <laughs> it's not the point that I'm trying to make. I did miss him, and with all due respects, probably could say there are many things I miss about that. But here's why I'm saying that, praise God, we have election cycles that are in four-year increments with an opportunity to change and how we need to change. And we can go back and reflect on our season of voting and the decisions that have been made by executives and power that should be put in a mutual, respectful check and balance system through the Congress and through the judiciary. And as you know, it is completely wonky. And I believe that began most certainly when in a Supreme Court adjudication banning prayer in school and authorizing abortion, we can see the lineage of a train wreck that inevitably we are inheritors of presently. One good thing that we've done as a nation and as obviously an adjudication, a correction, was a reversal of Roe versus Wade. That's good. When there's opportunity in which God gives power to an individual and they take that opportunity to do good, that's good for the people. When they, like these particular characters here that we've been studying, choose to disregard God, then the ramifications of that is basically the protection and safety of a people that God loves becomes limited because God will step back until allow the ramifications of decisions that are made contrary to his heart play out in the lives of human events. This is what we're seeing here. From the time that Jeroboam, king of Israel, that would be the 10 tribes, Rehoboam, king of Judah, the lamp that would be left in Jerusalem, having both the tribe of Judah, very likely Benjamin as well, there is civil disunity and there is spiritual calamity on both sides of this. It is a repeating of what you do know, and that is both of these guys were given a fresh shot. They would have been, to some degree, one being obscure, Jeroboam, known obviously in the ranks for what he had contributed under Solomon. But Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, he had an opportunity to disregard the counsel of his young guys and to listen to the counsel of his elders, and he disregarded. What we do see, though, is all of them failed with regard to their faithfulness to the Lord, carrying out the charges of God. And we're now moving into the closure of them. One we have, that would have been Rehoboam, 
it's not meant to be confusing, but at times what the scriptures do historically is they sum up what a man ultimately was allowed to achieve. It closes, and then we get, if you would, a microscope on events that still are in play. And so we have to sometimes make a review of that. That's where we'll kind of be at today, as this lineage where I was trying to equate it with what we have known in our country as the presidencies in which people prayerfully are making their choices that honor God and not their political compulsion for it has ramifications. You've heard of that. Elections have consequences. Elections are supposed to have blessings, but have you heard that that is the popular biphrase now? Elections do have consequences. What? I want it to have blessings. I want to be blessed in what the election is intended to do. So in this opening, picking it up from where we left off, and we still have before us Jeroboam. He outlives Rehoboam by about five years in proximity. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, Abijam became king over Judah. So he's going to be parallel to the last remaining years of Jeroboam up north. And he's going to be occupying the southern kingdom or Judah that has their place in what we would call proper Jerusalem, the city of David. It says in verse 2 that he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And it says in verse 3, as we document lineage and politics and spiritual waywardness, he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. And so, as a result, or the consequence of, in this case, dynasty elector, meaning the guy that gets to fill the spot based on his relationship to the predecessor, in this case, a father. He just carries on in the ways of foolishness, which we know from both perspectives, both Jeroboam and Rehoboam, was idolatry, the condoning of it, the allowance of it, the perversion in it, which will then be documented again moving through chapter 15. But there is an implication with regard to this, this word, which we've just mentioned here, and that is loyal to the Lord his God. Loyalty can be defined in this, Two aspects, but the one that I think has great merit to consider right now would be found in Romans 5. I'm going to turn there. You're welcome to join me there as well. And in Romans chapter 5, 
related to this presentation of what he wasn't, but what it implies. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The emphasis on this word, correlating it with loyalty, is he had no peace with God. In other words, when you are not at peace with God, you are at enmity with God. You're waging a war of temperament. You are contrary in your mind to what the Spirit desires to do with your heart. And every person probably here at some point in time can say, man, was I angry at God. When I went through this, when I went through that, I was angry. What you don't understand, or you may, either or, is that God is not angry with you, with me, never has been since the time in which the Lord became for us the sacrifice that we could not be. It's a curious thing. When things go bad, people get mad at God. Back here at this time, this issue of loyalty was essential to the success of a king. David who will be mentioned again, who had a loyal heart, means that he was at peace with God. And the times in which his peace was disrupted was when there was consequence in a decision that was rendered by him without necessarily seeking the Lord. There will only be one brought up as a reminder of what he had done. You will never see it recited in the New Testament, though. And the reason that that's important is because it's a principle. What has been done in our past is not remembered by God in our future, our future standing, or what we would say as believers now, our present living relationship with God. And what does that do? It frees you up from all the condemnation that is imposed upon you through media, and obviously through Satan, who loves to whisper and lie and use a variety of voicings to make you believe that you have no place with God. You're just a bronze item in his inventory of things made, and you're tarnished. You can't even polish yourself. You can't achieve to what is an ideal that you have in your heart to do, which is why, yes, last week's teaching was the emphasis. Are you simply bronze? Or are you by where you have standing and actually placement? Those shields that were in the house of God, removed ultimately by transgressors, and then substituted for bronze. That's what we found Rehoboam doing. Just content with the substitution of bronze, the conclusion was, that isn't you guys. 
You're not content with the substitution. It's because in you is a heart of gold that God has done in your life and by his spirit. So moving back into our text right now, but also being mindful right now, this is an implication of this. He did not have peace with God, and the reason he had no peace with God is that he continued in a carnal governance of the people of God. And as a result of that, incompatible with the future of Israel, with the future of Judah, both of these guys have lineages that are defiled based on not wanting peace with God, wanting to have compatibility with the people that they were overseeing. You can't chum up to the world. It doesn't mean that you cannot speak to the world and be examples for the world. But it means that they don't get to influence you. You, by the Spirit of God, influence them. Every single one of us, to the degree that we're here now, was influenced by somebody that said, I'm gold, and so are you. I'm not just brassy. I'm not just common elements, amalgams. I am golden. And when you find yourself, and maybe you found yourself this week, the Lord just spoke to you, you're golden, you're golden. And you didn't feel like it. It didn't seem that way based on what you read, based on what you heard, based on whatever, your insecurities. You're golden. The Lord did that for me. Why wouldn't he have done that for you? This movement right now is lineage. And what we want to be certain of is that as you sit here, you're able to say, it is so wonderful to have the peace of God in such uncertain times. And as you listed off fairly accurately, missing one president, wow, I can remember many of them and their decisions. I can remember the Congress at particular times and legislating. I can remember world crises in their times. Sheesh. Is that the best we can do? It's not the best we can do. The best we can do is turn our nation back to God. And as we pray for that, introduce people whom you will see one is allowed to rise upon the scene and make decisions that please God because he grew up having peace with God. When we have peace with God, we make decisions that please God. When we do not have peace with God, we make unpleasing decisions on our own. Verse 4 simply reiterates, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. This is a confident, assuring word in scriptures that what God had promised to do as a result of David's heart, he would not let be undone. We have a hope too, because we have a greater than David. 
We have the son of David. We have Jesus Christ for his sake. Though things may seem undone, chaotic, out of control, doomed for destruction, inevitably that will happen. We do not have to give up on God's promises presently. We read them. We write them. We own them. We do not change them for the lesser metal. Even when it seems the enemy has vanquished your house, the residency of the Spirit of God, you do not have to consent to substitution at any time. And that's an encouraging word. For David's sake, David couldn't be worried about this. He rested ultimately, as the scriptures would say, with his fathers. He was buried in Jerusalem. He had no more say-so in it. You know what? It wouldn't have troubled him at all. For he would have been in those days in the place in which Old Testament saints were comforted, the bosom of Abraham. There's a mystery to it. We're not sure of everything about it. But the important thing is that this is not a problem for that generation who loves God. And to be absent from the body goes to be within his presence. It's our time of settling things on earth the way that pleases God in heaven. One prayer, one footstep, one decision at a time. One act of faithfulness, one tribute to God. One new song, whatever it may be. Doing what you can with what it is God has enabled you to do. And so it goes on to reiterate that David did, verse 5, what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, comma, except, it says, in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And David had a conscience that at times plagued him. And at times, ignoring his conscience, he had made decisions that were contrary. One thing we know about David which we have not seen necessarily in our political system is repentance. Wow, what a mistake we've made. We try to correct things, and one of the biggest corrections that was made was redefining that we are not going to legislate, authorize abortion. Was that applauded? It was applauded probably by half the country, but who had the larger voice? Those who were contentious, those who not having peace with God, and those who do not care about the life of the unborn. Wow. It's a hard change at times to make when all implications would say, we're desperate to make change. Why not try righteousness? Why not take a stand that represents the heart of God? And so verse 6 says, there's war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The reason we go back to his life is because he has still about five years left. But that war is still going to continue. We might be able to contemporize this. And there was war between the Republicans, the Democrats, and the Independents all the days of their life. This was a civil war over a spiritual matter. Whenever there's a spiritual decline, it means that the civility of people will not improve. 
it will end up in demise, confusion. And that's what this was really all about. They chose to reject the tenets of God, the priesthood, which still at that time was established. It's interesting how all of this could have fallen apart seemingly so quickly. But we'll take a look that at the close here, we'll actually see that after Rehoboam, two other kings appointed, one that comes on the scene to deliver a prophetic blow of annihilation to Jeroboam's household, that 22 years would have passed between Solomon's closure or the beginning of Rehoboam, just 22 years. So I can go back 22 years, right? You can too. That's an easy one for us. I remember 2000 as if just yesterday. I can go back further and remember other things as if just yesterday. How fast the years have passed. And I want them to pass golden for me and for my kids and for you guys, for the church. I want to have a golden age of the church. You know what? I'm not sure if we're there again. We could be, but everything tells us the Lord's summing things up. The summary, remember that's when you get to the end of the book and you read what an author has said in the analysis of what he penned. That's where I used to go as a student to turn my book report papers. <laughs> I'd go to the back. I didn't know that the teacher could go there too. But in our case, when we go back to this book, it tells us what our future is going to be. And we are to be encouraged by it. War between these two, and when we see Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, when we see their names, it will also represent the lineage of consequence. The rest of the acts of Abijam, he was introduced to us in verse 1, the rest of his acts, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles and the kings of Judah, and there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. Warfare continues. Different name, different face, same consequence. So Abijam rested with his fathers, and it says they buried him in the city of David. And then Azza, his son, reigned in his place. So this guy that has just passed and his son now taking his spot represents as the opening shows us a position in Judah. So even as the Lord is preserving Jerusalem for the sake of David, he gets a bad guy in there. Not necessarily what you'd consider your best pick, which is for us also prudent to realize whom we think is not our best pick may be purposefully there in order that people get tired enough of their picks and decide to say, Lord, you make the choice because I seem to be failing. Every election cycle I am failing, or we are. 
this isn't to per se simply be political, but we are at a juncture that is important. We have midterms. How would God have you vote in the midterms? Are we so red, so blue, and whatever independents are so white, is there something that we could say by scriptures and by his spirit, we have common ground? See, that's what I want. I want the common ground of God's will based on the principles of scripture, not on the persona of somebody. If somebody's persona is contrary to mine, but their principles are closely aligned more so with scriptures, I know who I will choose. The scriptures present a variety of personalities that we would say, I would never invite that person over for a cup of coffee. Great, you don't have to. But God doesn't mind doing tea time with people that have temperaments different than us as long as their temperaments are at peace with God. And it can be most assuredly said of them, <laughs> they followed principles, they followed precepts, they behaved as if they had a friendship with God. That's good. Personality, we all have our picks. But when the personality is one that reflects the person of Jesus Christ, in principle, in precept, God can take them. He did take quite a batch of guys, didn't he? And guys that you would have said, you guys are disciples? Really? What a ragtag group of spiritual men. You guys got problems. I would say we qualify too. The rest of these acts are recorded in Chronicles and that will repeat what has been studied here in a different detailed setting. So let's go on to Azah. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, he'll rule 22, he's got two more left on the scene. He is in the northern side. Asa became king over Judah. Notice what happens. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. This is good. Because he's going to be found, notice this, doing God's business. This says that somebody has taken a spot of authority over him and this shows us his assessment of what he must do as one of his first efforts in cleaning up the camp. His grandmother's name, that's who she is, was Maka, the granddaughter of Abishalom, Abishalom. And as it did was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And verse 12, he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Also, he removed Maka. Who was she? She was in lineage, granddaughter. And it says this, he removed her from being what? Queen mother, because she had made, it says this, an obscene image of Asherah. And Azah cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron, not far at all from the foundation walls of Jerusalem, what we would say just a short little walk. 
Now, this is important because he's in conflict with family right now, but he's deposing her because of perversion. Ashtarah was a goddess construed, conceived by the minds and imagery of men, and it was a perversion of worship that was made access to in what were known as the high places, which we talked about previously. Solomon allowed it, Rehoboam allowed it, Jeroboam allowed it. All of these things were perversions. However she found herself in placement, it is not unusual that there's going to be conflict before people that are God's people and the world system that technically is governed by Satan as to what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And in this case, the perversion that she both subjected for a brief time her constituencies to, he takes down, displaces her, removes it. He does so with great conviction. And so that's done away with. It's basically burned by the brook Kidron. Verse 14 says, But the high places were not removed, nevertheless, as his heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. The Kidron book would be a low place. The high places would be above the city. And it's hilly, not necessarily in the sense of high, high, high mountains like we see around here. And so the question that would be asked is, how could he have done something so obvious to detour and dissuade the worship of this god, this idol created by men, and fail to move up to the higher places and eradicate it all. I suppose we have to say that that is by shortcoming. The same thing that was going on there that could have also been dealt with at the same time what was going on in the city by his relative could have been taken care of. And so one of the things that we can learn from this is that there's always something to do that is yet undone. And we have to pursue the heart of the Lord in terms of what that means. But the same thing that was going on up there, he dealt with very forcefully in the city proper. And sometimes that's what happens as we go, well, we've dealt with it in the city. We've dealt with it in the church. But what we forget is that it's still lingering on the peripherals. The high point is also a place in which the advantage of what is seen is to them, not those who have to look up and through. And so the work of the church is never done based on how well it's going for us now, how clean we are, where we're at. We've done away with the idolatry. We've smashed it, burned it. It's no longer a part of either what we once were or it's not tolerated and where we're at. But in the peripherals, those high places in which the enemy has advantage of seeing and, if you would, maneuvering, we've got to take care of that. We take care of it by what? That's what I was moving towards earlier. The privilege of being able to vote. Who's going to be 
the one that will ascend those high places. See, the church isn't to make a charge up that mountain and destroy. Our charge is to keep the sanctuary and to pray for those who in authority over civility will make decisions that eradicate what is being listed here, the perversion of culture that is affecting and is defiling the mind that desperately wants truth and wants to have a connection with God, but it is listening to too much of what is vice and just terrible sin and being persuaded. That's what we have today. So he's still, though, listed as one who is having favor with God, loyal to the Lord. He did remove what was necessary to remove. Administratively, it would seem he left the other remaining to be done undone. The high places remained, but he was loyal to the Lord all his days. So he's going to have a long reign, about 41 years. It says in verse 15, he also brought into the house of the Lord the things which the father, uh, which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, such as silver and gold and utensils. So what he's doing right now is where there had been a ransacking or vanquishing, he's now bringing back in. He went out to find them. He sanctified them making ceremony, whereas one they got taken unceremoniously, he moves to have them brought back in. That's a good thing. He's doing things to tighten things up. In verse 16, it says, There was war between Uzzah and Beasha, king of Israel, all their days. Beasha is being introduced right now, and though we aren't necessarily confident of how he replaced or found himself replacing the king. Obviously, that when following Jeroboam, we are presuming is going to be introduced as a adjudicator. But it says, Behasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah, and it says, built Ramah, and it says that he did this that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. And so this is somebody who's now what we would say an enemy of the work that Asa is doing. So it goes to say that whenever there's a godly work, there's going to be warfare that happens thereafter. The church has always known this. We can't presume that it's simply, oh, well, God's in the work and God's with us as we work. Therefore, we don't need to be concerned. But Ephesians tells us that we're at war in a spiritual battle. And that battle invites all of us to be both in prayer and armored up so that we don't become victims. We become what? What God has intended us to be, victors. And so Asa, it says in verse 18, took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants 
And King Asa sent them to Benahadad, the son of uh, Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, the king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So this is a civil attack, right? When there's no longer spiritual unity, you will have incivility. It leads to an attack of your neighbor, other governing agencies, which is our cultural predicament right now. What Azza does, we don't see him conferring with the Lord by prayer, talking things over with a priest or prophet. So he seems to be making an expedient decision to have brokered an ally with the king who is in Syria right now. That's the problem, too, when the church begins to broker with those who are outside of us, thinking, well, they've got the muscle, they've got the finances, they can help me out of this predicament. Whenever any of us personally or as a church corporately begin to see in the brokering of how it might go better for me to win the victory, that can be a problem. Unless God says to do it, that isn't necessarily a great strategy to live with. And so he's now brokering this. He's seeking somebody stronger than him. But who could be stronger for Asa than God? If God said that there's a lamp that for the sake of my servant David, I'm going to leave in place, and Azza, you're doing pretty good on your start, you keep going, who did he have to fear? Only fear itself. That's not my quote. Only fear itself. But perfect love is to cast out fear, we're told in precept. And so is his love getting perfected? If his heart was loyal, which was at peace with God, what happened? Don't know. Maybe it was difficult kicking his relative out of an office that she had no entitlement to take. I don't know. But the brokering does happen. It has an effect, meaning that it's going to allow him to take this enemy force that's coming in from the north and provoke it to leave. We see that here. Let there be a treaty between you and I. I need your help right now. Come and break your treaty with Beasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Civil attack. And so Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa, sent the captains of his army against the cities of Israel. He attacked Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Meacha, and Chinneroth with all the land, within all the land of Naphtali. And now it happened when Baasha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and remained in Tizrah. And verse 22, Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted, that they took away the stones and the timber of Ramah which Baasha had used for building, and with them King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mitzpah, verse 23, and the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did, 
and the cities which you built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in, it says, his feet. There's implications there. So Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Lineage, here's what's happening. Somewhere at the time in which the political alliance was formed, it seems as though he may have lost his spiritual footing a bit. The implication here is the disease of foot shows that something happened to his walk. That's a picture. We don't know exactly what it means. But anytime it is used, it's a means by conveying to us somehow in the footsteps of walking with the Lord. There was a deviation that cost maybe an effective outcome that could have been his legacy. But the legacy that he does have right now, which is to be noted, is this. Jehoshaphat, his son, is on the scene. And Jehoshaphat is going to be a good king. God has replaced evil with good. Twice now it's happening. And the importance of this is to say it's not through as long as God is reigning in the hearts of the men and the women and in the places of authority that give opportunity for perversion to be eradicated and immersion into the things of the Spirit lifted up. It's a picture that says God's given us that authority to walk right into heaven should he call us home to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to walk victoriously through all the challenges that we face today. But let's do it with confident, assured footsteps that influence the next generation. Oh, he went, he went that, oh, he was so close to the finish line and then got disease of foot. The, the faith walk just... Got disease of foot. And so it's a picture of principle. The rest of this, as it concludes, is somewhat triumphant because this bad player, and we identify him at the close, Baasha, king of Israel, will have his days spent. But I do want to say this in the closing because there is going to be a judgment that the Lord will satisfy in this time of this particular person, Beasha, and that was the complete annihilation of Jeroboam according to a prophecy that had been given because he was so wicked and what he started would end up being this predicament that lasts hundreds of years. 300 plus years to the time in which the northern kingdom is taken into captivity and ultimately the southern kingdom as well will be decimated. So we're just getting a lead on it. As this closes for today's teaching, simply the principles right now for us are that with the position that God has given to you, as members of his body, not divided, one heart, 
one spirit, one Lord, you make your stand affirmative. What God says, I will do. And no other voicing will I listen to. With God as my strength, my great tower of refuge, I will have confidence in the decisions that I make, for I seek him and ultimately my determination. What I vote. Oh, you brought politics in. What I vote. Of course, God's given us a country that privileges us with voting, but that's not it. The decisions you make for the influence of the next generation, so important. Why? Because do you want to continue having a reign of pain? I thought you said it's got to get worse before it gets better. That is true, but it's not definitive. If God brings in two refreshing kings, is it impossible for God to bring in some refreshment in our government? Refreshment in our churches by what people are saying. None of this has worked. None of these guys, none of these gals are working except the ones that seem to be laboring for the Lord in love. Those guys, they seem to be blessed. These others, they promise us stuff, but we don't want stuff anymore. We feel overstuffed. What we want is God. What we need is peace with him. And so that's kind of where we'll conclude today that we are responsibly going to be parishioners, Christians, believers, prepared right now for heaven while we do works that have been prepared by God for us that we should walk in them. God's prepared works beforehand that we should walk in them, and that's what we want to do.